This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on why women can no longer trust the police after decades of devastating institutional failure. Extreme swimmer and environmental diplomat Lewis Pugh reveals the punishing impact of braving the coldest waters on Earth. And Tom Lamont discovers the pleasures and pitfalls of living in a location with a silly name. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we begin, just a warning. There's quite a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, a criminally misogynistic police officer is revealed as one of Britain's most prolific sex offenders and officials voice surprise. No wonder women feel betrayed, rages Marina Hyde. Read by Emma Stannard. In July 2021, a man pleaded guilty to the murder of Sarah Everard, which he had carried out while serving as a Metropolitan Police officer. He had already pleaded guilty to her kidnap and rape. The then Met Chief Cressida Dick stood on the steps of the Old Bailey and declared, everyone in policing feels betrayed. And yet, did they? That very same month, the same month, an allegation of rape was made against David Carrick. This allegation led to Carrick's arrest. But that arrest for alleged rape, alleged rape, did not even lead to Carrick's suspension. It led only to his being put on restricted duties. What are we to conclude from this? That there are so many allegations of rape made every month against Met officers that you honestly just can't overreact to them all or you'd go mad. Or that the sense of betrayal, supposedly felt by the Met, did not run deep in the most basically meaningful way when it desperately needed to. How was it possible, in that febrile climate of intense public dismay and anger, which everyone recalls, that the reddest of all flags was not raised when Carrick was accused of rape. How was it possible that after the murder of Sarah Everard, Carrick was reassessed and judged fit to return to his work as an armed officer? Whatever the answer to those questions, that is what happened. 
Forgive my wishful thinking, but you would think an elite police officer would have something called a file, which, when he was accused of an offence as serious as rape, would be looked at. In this basic scenario, his superiors would note that the officer in question had been the subject of nine previous serious complaints, eight of them involving women, stretching back almost two decades. They would then think, hang on a minute, but that is not what happened. So now there are more questions. After Carrick's guilty plea to offences that rank him as one of Britain's worst sex offenders, the Met is once again facing questions in the inadequate parlance of these things. It feels like we have long passed the point where every question the Met is facing begins with the words, how on earth? The Detective Chief Inspector, whose separate Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Hertfordshire major crime unit ultimately investigated Carrick, said on Monday, It is unbelievable to think these offences could have been committed by a serving police officer. Sorry, but no. The one thing this isn't anymore is unbelievable. I note that the Independent Office for Police Conduct, the IOPC, is now looking at the decision not to bring misconduct proceedings against Carrick. Sorry, the IOPC. Is this the same IOPC whose Director General, Michael Lockwood, was only last month forced to resign after the discovery that he himself was under investigation for a historical sexual relationship with a minor? Lockwood had until that point been told to keep working as normal, despite having told his deputy that he was facing a criminal inquiry. That deputy is now the acting head of the IOPC. It turns out the IOPC General Counsel had also been approached by Lockwood for advice on legal representation, yet had failed to tell others about this. The IOPC has instituted an internal review to ascertain whether appropriate steps were taken at appropriate times. In the meantime, I'm sure we all can't wait to hear what this particular outfit has to say about the Carrick failings. Out on the airwaves to address the Carrick case, the new Met Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley's big buzzword has been integrity. Rowley said on Monday, we haven't applied the same sense of ruthlessness to guarding our own integrity that we routinely apply to confronting criminals. But Carrick was a criminal. Multiple criminal complaints about him were routinely ignored. This is about something far less abstract than integrity. It turns out 800 Met officers are now being investigated for over 1,000 sexual and domestic abuse claims. Yet on Tuesday morning, Rowley was at pains to claim there is such a residual basis of trust in British policing. Really? Ask women and girls if they feel that way. It doesn't really matter if it's not all police officers, if it's this many of them. Perhaps officers could wear badges with their station nicknames to help the public identify the problem ones. Carrick's nickname was Bastard Dave, though only because he was mean and cruel, the Met's lead for professionalism, Barbara Gray, was at bizarre pains to clarify on Monday. Not because of anything sexual, you know. 
I guess this is a step up from the Met's advice in the wake of the Everard case, where it advised women in fear while being questioned by a lone police officer to wave down a bus. Gray also stated that the Met's Carrick failings were a step back for policing, which doesn't exactly cover it, unless she's talking about a step back into the abyss. The idea that the Met is capable of reforming itself is the last refuge of people ultimately interested in it staying much the same. External experts in everything from violence against women to institutional failure and beyond need to come in operationally to effect meaningful change. Until that happens, the plain reality is that less than 1% of reported rapes lead to a conviction in England and Wales a systemic collapse aided by the horrendous and high-profile actions of some police officers. Which means that the police have arguably the perfect situation for them. One where women are so without faith that the process works that they mostly can't even face making the complaints in the first place. On Tuesday morning, former Met Chief Superintendent Dal Babu said in passing that women often withdrew cooperation from rape inquiries for whatever reason. In fact, we know the reasons and can see them very clearly. It is all too often a rational act, which tells you everything about how utterly broken the process is. In an article about the Carrick case and misogyny in policing, the writer Sean Norris recalled on Monday a heartbreaking quote from the aftermath of the botched Met investigation into the black cab rapist John Warboys. Despite his first victim having reported her attack at the time, it would be years before she attended an identity parade of warboys with 20 or 30 other women. And I just sat in the corner thinking, you're all here because of me, this woman reflected. You are here because I wasn't believable. And that is where we are. Contrary to those typical statements of the likes of Cressida Dick and many others to this day, The police have not been betrayed. The victims have. That was Don't Tell Me That David Carrick's Crimes Were Unbelievable. The Problem Is Victims Aren't Believed by Marina Hyde. Read by Emma Stannard. Next, by braving some of the most forbidding waters on the planet, Lewis Pugh draws the attention of the world's leaders to the devastating effects of global warming. Here he talks to Tim Lewis about extreme cold, coral reefs, and taming his inner wolf. Read by Joplin Sibtain. Lewis Pugh typically starts to plan his next extreme swimming challenge after just enough time has passed for him to have forgotten how deeply unpleasant the last one was. He opens his atlas. I know, an atlas and turns the pages until he finds a body of water that captures his imagination. I'm flicking through and I think, can I swim around this cape, says Pugh, who is 53 and has been testing the limits of human endurance for 35 years, wearing just a silicon cap and a pair of speedos. Can I swim down this river? Can I cross this ocean? Can I cross this bay? Where can I shine a light on a place? Where can I tell a story? When his next venture finally comes to him, Pugh notes it is never an aha moment, but almost always an erdur moment. 
something glaringly obvious. I'm agonising, agonising, and it's not quite right. And then suddenly, Pew claps his hands. It was right in front of me. Uh, duh, why did I not think of that? The Atlas has led Pew, who was born in Plymouth and raised in South Africa, to both the very top of the globe and the bottom of the earth. At the North Pole, the water was so cold, minus 1.7 Celsius, that the cells in his fingers burst and he was in pain for four months afterwards. He has swum one kilometre in a glacial lake at 17,000 feet elevation on Mount Everest, he nearly died, and across the width of the Maldives. OK, that one doesn't sound too bad. Many people have swum across the English Channel, but he swam the length of it, 348 miles in 49 days in 2018. But Pew, who is dashing with sharp cheekbones and a sweep of silver hair, like a telegenic actor who's been cast to play Lewis Pew in a biopic, insists that these achievements are just clickbait. His real work is done not in the water, but at Downing Street, in the Kremlin, at the COP summits, convincing world leaders that we need to arrest the degradation of the planet, especially our oceans, before it's too late. That's why Pew considers himself not so much a swimmer or an environmental diplomat, but a storyteller. He reasons, people are never moved by numbers. They are never moved by data. People are moved by stories. It's been like that since the beginning of time. That's how we connect, by telling stories. Finding compelling stories is becoming harder and harder. For one thing, Pew and two other endurance swimmers, the American Lynn Cox and the Slovenian Martin Struhl, have now checked off all the eye-catching landmarks. Struhl specialised in rivers, swimming the length of the Danube, Yangtze and Amazon. Cox swam from America to the Soviet Union in 1987 across the Bering Strait and was cited by the then-Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev as an example of thawing tensions between the two nations. Pew, more than a decade younger than Struhl and Cox, came along later. And I was left with all the damn cold stuff, he smirks. But as Pew gets older, the main issue is that each time he lowers himself into the water, he has to call on new powers of self-delusion. It's the only sport where the more experience you have, the harder it becomes, says Pew, over a hot chocolate and a biscuit in a cafe in Covent Garden. Most sports, tennis or golf, the more balls you hit, the better you're going to become. Not with cold water swimming. That's because when you've been really, really, really cold, you never quite warm up. It's deep in your bones. You remember it. Every single subsequent swim is a monumental mental effort to get back into the water, Pew goes on. So I have to forget about that pain in my hands at the North Pole. I have to forget about that real terror down in the Ross Sea. I have to forget about the anxieties as I was swimming down the tunnel under the ice sheet in East Antarctica. I've got to forget about the elephant seals down in South Georgia. You've got to have a really good reason to get back in because it's really hard to con yourself. Growing up, Pew was inspired by two views. The first was from his nursery school, Margaret Macmillan in Plymouth from where he could see ships coming and going from the sound. 
Even as a four-year-old, I'm dreaming that one day I'll be on one of those ships going somewhere, he recalls. When he was ten, his parents, Pat, an orthopaedic surgeon in the Royal Navy and honorary surgeon to the Queen, and Marjorie, a senior nurse, also in the Navy, emigrated to Cape Town. From his history classroom at secondary school, Pugh could see Robben Island, where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned until 1982. Pugh's first serious swim, in fact, was five miles from the mainland to Robben Island and back when he was 17. I was a young kid, as thin as you can imagine, says Pugh, and I barely made that swim, I was so cold. But he was proud of what he'd achieved and became a lifeguard, not for the faint-hearted in waters where great white sharks were regular visitors, though less so today, which concerns Pugh. Cape Town has everything you need if you're going to be an endurance swimmer, he says. You've got warm water on the one side, cold water on the other, and you've got a lot of really good swimmers who are aggressive in the water. Pugh lived in Cape Town until last year when he returned to the UK. He's been staying in London, but thinks he and his wife, Antoinette, a dog trainer, will end up in Dorset or Devon. There were a few reasons behind the move back but perhaps the main one was that his mother died from Covid during the pandemic. And I could never leave her. She was so dear to me, says Pugh. But if you're going to be an environmental diplomat, London is probably the place to be. Be under no illusions, we're in a race against time, so you need to have access to the decision makers. The plan wasn't always to affect global change. Pugh studied law at university, first in Cape Town and then Cambridge, and worked as a maritime lawyer in the city for almost a decade. His formative swims in the 90s, when he was in his early 20s, saw Pugh become the fastest man to swim around Robben Island, then the first person to swim across Lake Malawi. At 23, he swam the English Channel in just under 15 hours. But Pugh was starting to discover he had a capacity for extreme endurance. Years later, a sports physiologist, Tim Noakes from the University of Cape Town, would invent the term anticipatory thermogenesis to describe Pugh's response to cold water immersion. Uniquely, his body temperature would shoot up to around 38.4 Celsius, a mild fever, in advance of entering the water. This enables Pugh to survive in water temperatures that would kill most human beings within 30 minutes. They talk about anticipatory thermogenesis, this ability to generate heat before an event, says Pugh, and it certainly does make a significant difference. What it doesn't account for is 35 years in the cold. Is it my body or my mind? It's acclimatization. It's 35 years of training. I remember first hearing about Pugh in 2007 when he swam one kilometre across an open patch of sea at the North Pole in just under 19 minutes. What he was doing seemed balmy, or at least highly eccentric. Now, of course, it's hard to find anyone who isn't evangelical about wild swimming. I ask what he makes of Wim Hof, the Dutch motivational speaker known as the Iceman. I've never met him, replies Pugh. A lot of people, I recognise, have started doing his breathing techniques and feel very invigorated and alive, and it really works for them. But from a cold water point of view, it's very entry level. Go on. 
So when I was swimming, for example, in the Ross Sea in Antarctica, the water is minus 1.7 Celsius. Now you think, okay, what's the difference between minus 1.7 Celsius and maybe zero? It's a difference between climbing K2 in winter and climbing Snowdon in summer. It's that big. Pew is a big booster of the wild swimming movement. His favourite thing is taking a dip in the English Channel off South Devon in summer. My perfect temperature, he says, it's 17 Celsius. Not 16, not 18, 17 Celsius. But there's a very real difference between what he does on his extreme swims and that. There's a lot of people who swum now in 2, 3, 4 Celsius water, Pew continues. But when you go below it, you are in a death zone. A death zone. Down in Antarctica, I was also dealing with minus 27 Celsius air temperature. Water was slapping up against the side of the Zodiac boat and turning into slush in mid-air. You've got to have a very good reason to be swimming there. Anybody who says to me, I really enjoy the cold, they haven't been cold. Pew's punishing line of work has exacted a toll. Certainly life would have been easier and more remunerative had he remained a lawyer. But as much as Pew might take a Luddite approach to coming up with ideas for his swims, he is rigorous and highly professional when it comes to organising them. It's then that he turns to Google Earth and swimming up to two hours a day in training. There's a lot of people in my team, and they don't want to be part of something which is a suicide mission, says Pew. I do these things because I value and love life. I've got no death wish. I want to swim until the very last day of my life. How does his wife Antoinette feel? It's challenging, he replies, choosing his words carefully. Pew also has two grown-up stepchildren. Does his family ever come on the swims? My wife's been on some of the swims, yes. She was on that Ross Sea swim where it was so dangerous. I wanted her there for support and because it's a long journey. It takes about six weeks on a boat. The Inuit people say that in every single person there's a big battle taking place between two wolves, a good wolf and a bad wolf. Which wolf is going to win? And they say it's the wolf that you feed. At 4am before a swim, I've never found it possible to silence the bad wolf. As for whether the sacrifice is worth it, Pew can point to some big wins. After a series of swims in Antarctica in 2015, he reached out to Russia, meeting alone with the Minister of Defence Sergei Shoigu in the Kremlin, pushing for the creation of a marine reserve in the fragile Ross Sea. In December 2017, the world's largest protected wilderness area on land or water came into effect, a move that has been vetoed multiple times by China and Russia. It's the size of Italy, Germany and France combined. Everyone said I was crazy, but I knew that cold water is a language that Russians understand, says Pew. When we meet, Pew has not long returned from the Red Sea, which he became the first person to swim across in October, covering 76 miles in two weeks. The swim had some particular challenges, in particular oceanic white-tipped sharks and the fact that no one shuts down the Suez Canal, one of the world's busiest shipping lanes, just because a lone swimmer is coming through. But the main hurdles were geopolitical. Pew was swimming to raise awareness of the projection that if we heat the planet by 2 Celsius, 
we're currently at 1.2 Celsius. 99% of all living coral will disappear. Making speeches in Saudi Arabia and at the COP27 summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Pugh admits he faced some of the most recalcitrant audiences he had ever encountered. Unless we drastically reduce emissions, life will die, he says. And in Saudi Arabia, I said, you can have oil and gas or you can have coral. You can't have both. But we're currently on track to lose all the coral reefs in the world. I just cannot accept that. In November, the Egyptian government announced the creation of a 2,000-kilometre-long marine protected area called the Great Fringing Reef. Pugh has swum for 35 years and he wants to swim for another 35. He doesn't want to say where his next swims will be. I'm not telling you where they are, he exclaims. But I see the polar regions and the coral reefs as two ground zeros of the climate crisis. This is where it's all happening. He will go back to his atlas and scour the globe for his next story. As Pew takes his leave, I tell him that I feel like I've been talking to someone from a different era, meaning a Shackleton, a Mallory. Pew, with a twinkle in his eye, deliberately grasps the wrong end of the stick. Ha <laughs> ha! He roars. The future? I hope so. That was Extreme Swimmer Lewis Pugh. The polar regions are the ground zero of the climate crisis by Tim Lewis. Read by Joplin Sibtain. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, the UK is full of extremely rude-sounding towns and villages. But what's it like to live in them? Some locals can't wait to change the names, while others embrace the quirk, even selling signpost souvenirs. Tom Lamont sets out to explore the world of indecent appellations. Read by Emma Stannard. On the road to Twat, a message arrives from a resident there. Am I making the pilgrimage up through Scotland to this hamlet on the island of Orkney only to admire its notorious, unwittingly rude road sign? If so, don't bother. Our council was so frustrated by that sign being stolen, they have now not replaced it, 
says Judith Glue, who runs a gift shop selling pictures of the old twat signs to tourists who might otherwise leave the region disappointed. Grateful for her warning, I thank Glue and read over a list I've made of those other dwelling places in the UK that through some quirk of linguistic evolution have found themselves with fantastic filthy-sounding names. At Cockbridge in Aberdeenshire, they have the same trouble as in Twat. Our sign is constantly being pinched, says Jeeva Blackett, a councillor for the region. People have been taking them away as mementos. Why do they do it? It's an early lesson from my road trip around these towns, villages, parishes, hamlets and farms, many of which are irresistible to insta-tourists and sign thieves. Always phone ahead. One autumn day, I drive for over an hour to visit an ass hill in Dorset, just to find it's an unremarkable and uninhabited lane between hedgerows. The village of Shitterton, about 20 miles away, is much more interesting. Residents here are quite accustomed to hobby horse types like me, wandering through to have a nose around and ask questions. Most are proud, even defiant about this startling name of theirs, which derives from the fact that about 1,000 years ago, the site was an open sewer. One local, Peter Gordon, tells me he always makes sure to include Shitterton on his driving licence, because it's a reliable conversation starter if he's ever asked to show ID. Gordon directs my attention to an enterprising local plumber who has gone all in on a branding opportunity, renaming his premises Poo Corner. Not every local person takes quite such pleasure in their geographic distinction, however. One of Gordon's neighbours, Ian Ventham, tells me about a quarrel he used to have with his late mother-in-law. She always swore that the H in Shitterton was silent. There are still adherents to the Citadon variant today, sighs Ventham. I first became curious about these places, what it was like to live in them, what the benefits were, what were the frictions and frustrations for locals, when I read about the put-upon citizens of fucking in Austria. This remote, socially conservative village had suffered from decades of unwanted attention ever since the Second World War when British and American soldiers passed through and took home word about a truly unforgettable little place. The name is thought to stem from a centuries-old landowner. By 2005, fucking was so routinely overrun by backpackers and bucket listers, all of them chasing selfies or keepsakes, that CCTV cameras had to be pointed at every fucking sign in town. Even this wasn't enough to deter people, and in 2020, the local mayor, Andrea Holzner, oversaw a change of name to Fugging. Holzner did not respond to my requests to be interviewed, and no wonder, having told reporters in 2020, we've had enough. When I chat to Shittertonians about the plight of Fuckingites, though, they're sympathetic, having adopted their own special measure against sign thieves in 2010. Instead of a standard aluminium sign, too easily dug up and thrown in the boot of a car, residents invested in a great big lump of limestone, about the size of a fridge and surely heavier. It would require some sort of mobile crane to spirit away this engraved rock as a memento. After I've admired it for a while, I give Councillor Blackett in Scotland a call 
You should see this thing, I say to her. It's the answer to Cockbridge's problems. She promises she will look it up online. Browsing on Google Images becomes a risky business should you ever undertake to research such a trip. Internet queries about Three Cocks, a village in Powys, or Three Holes, a hamlet in Norfolk, can go wrong, quickly. It's no fault of the places themselves. The etymologies of these names trace back hundreds of years. Pair away a millennium of British history, says John Baker, Associate Professor of Name Studies at the University of Nottingham. And most of our towns and villages were named for features of the landscape, or a landowner, or an agricultural quirk. The names tended to reflect immediate local circumstances, says Baker. A particular hill, the condition of the soil. Many such meanings have been obscured or eliminated by time. Languages evolve. Different citizenries come and go. Suddenly you find yourself learning about a place called Clench in Wiltshire, and instead of that name summoning the idea of a hill in the vicinity, as it would have done in the 1200s, the modern ear hears only something lavatorial, or mine does. A Viking settlement comes to be known in Old Norse as Hill of Sek, or Sexhuger, and 1,000 years later we have the wonderful enigma that is the Yorkshire parish of Sexhow. There are actually two twats in the UK, one in Orkney and another in Shetland. We might have ended up with more, says Tom Burkett, a linguist from University College Cork. Only the Old Norse word for meadow evolved somewhat more innocuously south of the Scottish-English border, becoming thwaite. Residents of Haythwaite in Buckinghamshire might want to breathe a sigh of relief. Baker makes the point that we are hardly the first people in history to find ourselves snorting with amusement or blushing with embarrassment as place names become unmoored from their meanings. There is an ugly in Essex that for decades in the 19th century was primly rebranded as Oakley. Locals didn't want the association, says Baker who tells me about a district of Leicester, now known as Belgrave, that was once down in the records as Murdergrave. Norman conquerors arriving in the 11th century didn't like the sound of that Merd. Why not make the place sound less shitty and call it something beautiful, or Bell instead? Knowing all this, I start to feel more impressed by those places that have stuck fast to their filthy names despite the pressures of genteel bowdlerisation. In the late noughties, there was a decision made by the ruling council in Castleford in Yorkshire to alter the name of a thoroughfare in the middle of town. Ticklecock Bridge became Tittlecott Bridge, albeit briefly, because locals were so irritated by the prudish switch that they campaigned for a reversal. Ticklecock Bridge endures. When I drive to Sandy Balls in Hampshire one day, it's a surprise to find that this ancient place, once a sandy, bumpy field, thus the name, has been turned into a modern holiday park. There's now a ball court on site and a Segway garage. When I pass through, some children are being introduced to a domesticated alpaca. The name Sandy Balls is up in lights, everywhere. No squeamishness whatsoever. I get the same impression when I visit the village of Wetwang in East Yorkshire. Here, notoriety has been embraced, even greedily courted. 
Since the late 1990s, the people of Wet Wang have taken it upon themselves to invite minor celebrities to serve as honorary figureheads. The tradition started when the TV presenter Richard Whiteley, then the host of Countdown, made a few fond mentions of the village, it once meant wet field, on air. He was invited to be mayor and agreed, holding that title for years until his death in 2005. When Richard died, they wanted him replaced, says Paul Hudson, a weather presenter at the BBC. For God knows what reason, I won an election in the village. Hudson, like Whiteley before him, had never so much as visited. But he had mentioned the village on TV a few times, during some light-hearted weather segments, and he was installed as Wet Wang's second mayor in 2006. I helped choose the best vegetables at the summer fair, Hudson says. I judge the annual scarecrow competition. I do it for fun. I'm not even paid mileage. I get the feeling the residents just like it, that they're different. They are small, but they're on the map for something. I suppose it's quite a British thing. In the village of Penniston, 70 miles southwest of Wetwang, I meet photographer Dominic Greyer. After many hours spent driving and bleary from travel, I'm quite starstruck to meet Greyer in person. This 50-year-old must have put in more miles than anyone alive in his pursuit of obscure and obscene British place names, establishing himself as the Indiana Jones of his field. Sure, every few years some well-intentioned hiker or cyclist takes it upon themselves to tour the notorious sites, starting at one of the two twats and working south, fundraising for charity. But these men and women are amateurs, mere hobbyists compared with Greyer who has made a career out of a niche of all niches. I've done 20 years at the coalface of Great British Place Names, he says, when we're sitting down together for lunch. He says he first got interested when he was a student in the 1990s, doing data entry for a transport consultancy firm in York. The firm had a large collection of maps, and Greyer started poring over them, noting down the tiny lettered names of any farms, footpaths, fields or thoroughfares that caught his eye. High Backside near Pickering, he'd have to go there one day. Long Phallus Crescent in Brighouse, he added it to his list. In 2004, Greyer published the first of three photo books that presented his more abstract discoveries. Seething in Norfolk, Tiptoe in Northumberland, Fry Up in Yorkshire, Minions in Cornwall, with those place names that had a bit more tang, including Penniston itself, which derives from the older, more innocent-sounding Penningston, or Farm on a Hill. After years spent running a magnifying glass over ordnance survey maps and truckers' atlases and trudging with his camera over farmland, ditches, cliff tops, Greyer has been mistaken for an animal rights campaigner and a drains inspector. He's also been quizzed at least once by police officers about his intentions while lingering to take photos in places such as Dancing Dick's Lane in Essex or Busty View in Durham. Once he realised there was money to be made from those pictures in his archive that got people laughing, Greyer founded a company called Lesser Spotted Images and started manufacturing Penniston mugs and Sandy Ball's greetings cards as well as all the twat merch that Glue has been selling for years from her shop in Orkney. Greyer once got into an argument, he says, 
at a women's institute fair in Harrogate when a male security guard made him cover up his titty-ho tea towels. It's a junction of roads in Northamptonshire. On another occasion, he was laying out his wares at a fair in the village of Muff in County Donegal in Ireland. He sells Muff products too. When a local person looked over his photos from Happy Bottom in Dorset and Slack Bottom in Yorkshire and asked why Greyer didn't take photos of something nice instead, like flowers. Why don't you take photos of something nice instead, like flowers, I ask. If it's there, I want to see it, is all Greyer can say to explain his lifelong compulsion to catalogue these places. He points out that his work has been recognised by the art world and that Grayson Perry invited him to exhibit at a Royal Academy show in 2018. Greyer remembers stewing over what to submit. A photograph of Number 2 Passage in Manchester? He settled on one of Come Come Hill in Hertfordshire instead. As we're talking, a passing hiker notices one of Greyer's photographs on the table between us. He comes over to inspect it, Lady Gardens, Herefordshire, and introduces himself. Turns out, this hiker has a similar eye for place names. He and Greyer briskly compare notes, as if they are butterfly hunters or bird watchers meeting in the field. Greyer asks, Have you ever been over to Scarborough and those cliffs called Randy Bellend? No, but we do live close to Upper Thong, says the hiker. I have a photo of the sign at Nether Thong, says Greyer, not Upper. I prefer Upper. I think Nether is better. Have you ever heard of Fanny Moore Crescent in Huddersfield? Trumped, says Greyer, by Fanny Hands Lane in Ludford. I leave them to it, driving south out of Peniston into wilder country. Earlier that day, on the roads around Wetwang, I passed evidence of a traffic accident. Tyre tracks left the road towards a ditch, exactly where Wetwang's big welcome sign loomed as though a passing driver had seen the name, been distracted by mirth or disbelief, and lost control. Leaving Peniston, I almost get into similar grief. The landscape is stunning here. Rolling hills of green and brown, moss-covered walls, brooks. When I pass a craggy rock that's engraved with directions to the nearest village, I have to hit the brakes and come to a screeching halt. It's a marker for Peniston, forged from actual stone. It has been scratched all over by long-gone vandals, some of their faded carvings surely meant to be penises. I sit beside the stone for a bit, feeling unusually in tune with my compatriots. There is so much that divides us and makes us frustrated with each other, politically, economically, tonally. But we do share these ridiculous islands. With our twats, our clench, our churches named after a saint called Sexburger. I find something comforting and levelling about it whenever I hear of a new one. Assington in Suffolk, Cuckoo's Knob in Wiltshire. Out of pride or perversity, sometimes because of the conservation efforts of unsung heroes, we've stuck by these names. When a petition was launched in Rowley Regis in the West Midlands to try to alter the name of a local road that was felt by some to be bad for house prices, a counter-petition was launched. Save our beloved Bellend. 
I like what these campaigns say about us, stubborn little weirdo nation that we are. Ever since the start of my trip, I've been trying to get in touch with Linda George, the woman who stood up for Bell End, which probably referred to a bell pit in a bygone mine, successfully petitioning for its protection in 2018. When we finally speak, my travels are almost done. I ask her, why go to battle for Bellend? I lived there with my grandmother as a baby, George explains. She was a great storyteller about her village. There used to be a coaching house dating to the 1700s. There used to be Georgian pubs. By the time I was an adult, almost all of this was gone. It had been demolished for modern buildings. Even the church has been rebuilt several times. My kids fall about laughing whenever I talk about Bellend and protecting it, but it's an ancient name. It's one of the few things the village has left in terms of its history. In a way, if we lose Bellend, we lose everything. I wish George luck, and she does the same, asking me where I'm heading next on my road trip. I tell her I'm not sure. I have my eye on Butts Wind in Fife, or maybe Pant in Shropshire. We'll have to see. That was Next Stop Twat, my tour of Britain's fantastically filthy place names by Tom Lamont, read by Emma Stannard. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Emma Stannard and Joplin Siptain and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.